Confederate General Edward Porter Alexander participated in all of the great battles of the Western theater, as well as fighting in Tennessee in late 1863. Alexander wrote two books, which are still regarded by many scholars as the most influential of the personal accounts to come out of the Civil War. In today's lecture, our renowned speaker will assess Alexander's books and how they continue to influence historians and other writers. Dr. Gary W. Gallagher is the John Now Professor in History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia, and of course, a very great friend to the Virginia Historical Society. He's spoken here on several occasions and of course conducted research here in our rich holdings of Civil War manuscripts. In fact, he was a member of the inaugural class of our Mellon Fellowship Program back in 1988, and I won't tell you how old I was at that point, but we were very glad to have him then as we are today. Gary has also mined the collections of the Confederate Memorial Literary Society at the Museum of the Confederacy for his numerous books and his essays. That collection, as many of you may know, and hopefully you've heard us talking about this as we are so proud, will now be housed here at the Virginia Historical Society, where it will be preserved, cataloged, and digitized as part of a new Civil War Research Center. And this is the important part. This will be, through this partnership, the largest private repository of Civil War archives in the world. As you might imagine, of course, though, that comes with a great cost and lots of work. This is a $3 million effort to provide storage and to process and catalog this collection, and of course, to endow this remarkable resource so it can be accessible to the largest possible audience here in Virginia and elsewhere around the world. We're well over halfway there, and we welcome your help. Professor Gallagher, who's with us today, has received many awards for his research and writing, including the Laney Prize for the best book on the Civil War, the William Woods Hassler Award for Contributions to Civil War Studies, the Lincoln Prize, and the Fletcher Pratt Award for the best nonfiction book on the Civil War. He was also founder and first president of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites and has served on the board of directors of the Civil War Trust. We are so honored to have him with us today. Please join me in welcoming Professor Gallagher. I'm going to switch microphones here. I'm delighted to be here. It's always fun to speak, to speak at the VHS and to speak in this room. This is a great uh, room. Uh, Jamie wouldn't tell you how old he was uh, when I was a Mellon Fellow here. I'm going to reveal that I had brown hair uh, when I was a Mellon Fellow here. It was a very long time ago indeed. It was about that time also that I gave a lecture in the mural gallery here, which I don't think happens anymore, a lecture about Jubal Early and the Lost Cause. So the vibe in that room was just about right for that lecture. And I think the vibe in this room is perfect because it's filled with antiquarian booksellers in addition to all of you who are just friends of the library and interested in history. And I'm going to talk today about the best Confederate memoirist. Uh, that's Edward Porter Alexander. That's not just my view. It's, I think that would be a unanimous view of people who know what books former Confederate soldiers wrote. Porter Alexander really stands by himself. These two accounts are simply unrivaled among those published by men who fought for the Confederacy. They were written over the course of a decade, beginning in the late 1890s, 
but they appeared more than 80 years apart, appeared in print more than 80 years apart. Military Memoirs of a Confederate, a Critical Narrative, was first published by Charles Scribner's and Sons in 1907. Fighting for the Confederacy, the Personal Recollections of General Edward Porter Alexander was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1989. Alexander brought to his books great analytical acuity, a gift for describing key scenes in dramatic and memorable fashion, and the perspective of one who literally fought from Manassas to Appomattox. He served on the staffs of Generals PGT Beauregard, Joseph Eggleston Johnston, and R.E. Lee, before distinguishing himself as the finest artillerist in all of the Confederate Army, not just in Lee's army, but in the Confederacy. Although an ardent Confederate during the war, he wrote with almost none of the lost cause special pleading that was evident in the writings of most of his former comrades. My goal this afternoon is to convey a sense of why Alexander's books are so remarkable. And to that end, I'm going to start with a little bit of biographical information about him before moving on to address how he wrote the books and what audience he had in mind for each of them. He had very different audiences in mind. And I'm going to close by reading a few passages from the books that, that will illustrate some of their great strengths. They'll illustrate his narrative skill. I'm going to open and close with three of his finest narrative passages. Uh, they're, they're great, they're gripping, they're, they're fine narrative, but they also, with almost uh, every part of his book, this is true, uh, they convey interesting information about the army, uh, its makeup, and its character. I'm also going to use passages that illustrate his willingness to, to convey the hard, or what in the current uh, term would be called the dark side of the Civil War. He didn't shy away from that at all. I'm going to quote a couple of passages that show his sharp criticism of lost cause icons, uh, R.E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, at a time when most former Confederates simply didn't do that. Uh, he is not all alone in his willingness to do that, but he doesn't have much company. It's a very small treehouse that they're in, uh, in that way. And then I'll also offer a couple of other passages that just illustrate how he deviated from what people generally expected to get in an account written by a former Confederate. Before getting on with the substance of my talk, I'm going to, I will give you two personal observations. And one is that I spent four years editing Fighting for the Confederacy. I worked on them through the late 1980s, and of all the projects I've worked on in my life, that was the most enjoyable. It's the only one I've ever worked on where I literally was sorry to finish it. Usually, you're not only happy to finish it, but sort of staggering to the end and wondering if life is worthwhile. <laughs> but with Fighting for the Confederacy, it was absolutely not that way, because I knew I wasn't going to be in Porter Alexander's company anymore. Uh, the other thing is that, and I think this will probably be of more interest to this audience than most audiences because of the antiquarian booksellers here. Uh, as a confirmed bibliophile since I was about 10 years old, I've had the chance to own many copies of military memoirs of a Confederate. Uh, two of them very special copies. One is the only first edition, the 1907 edition, that had a dust jacket on it. The person who sold that book to me is in this audience, Stephen Rowe. But I also had Porter Alexander's own copy 
of military memoirs of a Confederate which had his annotations uh, throughout it. Uh, two very nice copies to own, and now I'll stop talking about that. And let's get on and talk about him just a little bit, just to set the scene. He was born into a prominent slaveholding family in Washington, Georgia, on May 26, 1836. He received his education from tutors at home before he went off to West Point, went to West Point in 1853, and graduated third in the class of 1857. He was marked from the beginning as someone who was going to go somewhere. And in the three years following his graduation, he taught for a while at West Point. He participated in the last phase of the Mormon War. And then he assisted Surgeon Albert J. Meyer in developing the wigwag system of motion telegraphy that would be so widely used during the Civil War. He was a political moderate, but when Georgia seceded from the United States, he left the United States Army. He left in February of 1861 and made his way here to Richmond, and upon arrival found out that he had been commissioned a captain of engineers in the Confederacy's fledgling army. No other Confederate officer played more varied roles or worked, I think, as closely with so many prominent officers as E.P. Alexander. I really do think he was in a class of one in that regard. He joined Beauregard's staff as chief signal officer in June of 1861, but Beauregard then also made him chief of ordnance in his army. And he held both of those posts in Joseph Johnston's army subsequently, and then under R.E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia after that. And he served in both those capacities through much of 1862. He did so during the Peninsula Campaign, during the Seven Days, Second Bull Run, and during the Maryland Campaign of 1862. And while doing all those things, he also was frequently called upon to perform engineering tasks of various kinds. He was really smart. He knew he was really smart, and you can tell that he probably found ways to let other people know he was really smart. But he was really smart, and so people valued him, and they asked him to do a lot of things that weren't necessarily directly related to what his official portfolios were within the Army. Lee was one of those. Lee and the others, however, while he was doing all these other things, figured out that where his real aptitude lay was with artillery, and that the place that he probably would yield the greatest uh, significant service to the Confederacy was in the Army's long arm. We have no more accomplished officer, wrote Chief of Artillery William Nelson Pendleton in recommending that Alexander be promoted to command one of the battalions of artillery in James Longstreet's First Corps. Alexander had been one of those who had helped put forward the plan that gathered the batteries of the Army into battalions in the autumn of 1862, which was a much more efficient way to deploy artillery. It's one of the great innovations for the artillery during the war, and Alexander's imprint was on that. Now he's been given a battalion of artillery. Lee thought that is where he belonged. He was promoted to full colonel on March 3rd, 1863, and he now had a secure place in the branch where he would make his reputation. The most famous historian of the artillery of the Army of Northern Virginia, Jennings C. Wise, wrote of Alexander, he was far and away the superior of all others in this arm. <clears throat> he was the best Confederate artillerist. I've made that point four times. I'm now going to assume you've listened to at least one of them. 
And I won't tell you again, but you can file that away. He's the best Confederate gunner. That's five times. He immediately excelled in his new position. He placed the guns at Fredericksburg uh, that played such a significant role uh, during the Battle of Fredericksburg on December the 13th, 1862. He was the key person in massing Confederate guns at Hazel Grove at Chancellorsville on May the 3rd. Hazel Grove, that key part of ground at Chancellorsville that gave the Confederates one of the few opportunities during the entire war to achieve artillery superiority on a major battlefield. He also most famously was in charge of the pre-Pickett-Pettigrew assault bombardment at Gettysburg on July 3rd, 1863. He's everywhere in Lee's campaigns, as I said. He's in the First Corps, but while half the First Corps was down near Suffolk, uh, during the Chancellorsville campaign, Alexander was not. He was with the Army. He's with them all through those campaigns. He went off to North Georgia in September of 1863 with Longstreet's First Corps. He just missed Chickamauga, but participated in the action at Chattanooga and later at Knoxville uh, toward the end of the year. On all those fields, he functioned as the tactical chief of artillery in James Longstreet's First Corps. He's not the senior officer. He's not in charge of the First Corps artillery. John B. Walton had that position. Walton was a friend of Longstreet's. He was senior to Alexander, and this was a difficult situation. It made sense in a practical way because the best person is in charge when it counts the most, but he's not really in charge all the time. There was a little bit of tension there, and that was resolved that situation that involved frustration uh, in several directions. That ended on March 19, 1864, when Alexander was promoted to Brigadier General, and he became the official head of the artillery in James Longstreet's First Corps. There are only three Brigadier Generals of artillery in the Confederacy, and Alexander's one of them. He maintained his high reputation throughout the Overland Campaign and the Siege of Petersburg, and was on the retreat to Appomattox as well. Drawing on his engineering expertise, he helped lay out part of the defensive line here in Richmond in the last part of the war, and Lee eventually put him in charge of all the Confederate artillery between the James and Appomattox rivers. As the Army made its way to Appomattox and went on the 9th of April, uh, Federals were pressing from several directions against Lee's troops there. Porter Alexander drew the last battle line of the Army of Northern Virginia, and thus ended this memorable military career of E. Porter Alexander. Despite the demands of a successful post-war career, he was an educator and then a railroad executive after the war. I won't go into that. Despite the press of just supporting his family, he had a large family, he found opportunity to study the campaigns of the war. And he initially was going to write a history of the First Corps. Longstreet wanted him to do so, but he found that he was too busy with other things, so he didn't push through with that, and he also couldn't find enough materials corresponded with a number of former comrades, but didn't get as much material as he wanted. And so he dropped his plan to write a history of the First Corps, banded it in the late 1860s. But he returned to the history of the war in the 1870s, and he contributed several pieces to the Southern Historical Society papers. He contributed two to the Century Company's landmark series, Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, and he began thinking about perhaps writing more than just essays. In all of the things he wrote, 
he showed a scrupulous attention to detail and an absence of special pleading that showed him to be very different from most of the men who were writing about the war. Most people sought to get even. I haven't had a chance to get even with him. Now I'm going to get even with him. I'm going to write this article, and boy, it's going to get it's going to feel so good to get even with him. And he'll know how good it makes me feel, and that'll make him feel even worse. <laughs> Life is rich. <laughs> Robert Underwood Johnson, who was one of the editors of Battles and Leaders, aptly described Alexander as a man of such, quote, integrity and candor that anything he writes may be relied upon. Alexander undertook a full-scale memoir of the war in the late 1890s. He was sent down to Nicaragua to help adjudicate a boundary dispute. A Grover Cleveland sent him down. He went down in 1897, and he hadn't been there very long when he got a letter from one of his daughters and two ledger books. And she said, Papa, you've said you didn't have time to write your reminiscences. Now I know you do, and I want you to start writing them. I want you to write them for us, meaning the children. And so he decided that that would probably be a good idea. He did have a lot of time on his hand down there. He had a small library that included the one-volume version of Battles and Leaders. He had brief diaries uh, that he had kept during the war. He corresponded with some fellow Confederate soldiers as he went along, and he began to retrace the campaigns of the Army of Northern Virginia. He intended to let no one but his family read this account. That is exceedingly important. He's not writing this for publication. He doesn't think anyone is going to read this except his children and eventually their children and perhaps a very small circle of his closest friends. No one but his family would see the finished project. But he still wanted to get things right. As he explained to one of his sisters, he said, I intend not to publish but only to let my children see these so of course they're very personal he wrote to his sister but although they were going to be personal he said that he wanted to get things right and he said i've written along with my own little doings a sort of critical narrative of the middle of the military game which was being played and i have not hesitated to criticize our moves as i would moves in chess no matter what general made them upon returning home he said he would revise the manuscript. He wanted to finish a first draft before he left Nicaragua and thought when he got home, he would take his time and really polish it and then let his family see it. He said, I'll just fill in some gaps uh, once I get home. He thought it would take two years. Well, he did finish a draft just before he left Greytown in October 1899. It was 1,200 pages long just a shade more than 1,200 pages long. He has a beautiful hand. Uh, when I edited it, there was one word in 1,200 pages that we couldn't figure out. One word, and it's not like Jubal early. Jubal's idea was, I don't want anybody to be able to read what I'm writing. Uh, Porter Alexander seemed to take a different view. How about writing in a legible hand? There's an idea. Well, he certainly did, but it's 1,200 pages long, and it offered innumerable insights into Lee and his campaigns, as well as a bountiful supply of anecdotes about Alexander's activities. Bluntly honest in a text that he believed very few people would ever see, 
uh, except family and friends, as I said, he dissected campaigns with a very impartial and analytical eye. It's, it's, it's unlike anything else in the literature. R.E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and others in the Southern Pantheon came in for very close analysis. He admired both of them a great deal. There's a tremendous amount of praise for both Lee and, Alex, uh, and Jackson in his manuscript, but also very telling critiques of them. The distortions characteristic of Southern accounts influenced by the myth of the lost cause have almost no place in the Greytown recollections. Almost none. Uh, 90 years after Alexander wrote them, as I've already told you, UNC Press published them. So there's this very long period uh, when nobody, nobody, literally no one knew this existed. The only reason I found out about it is, be, I'm going to mention Stephen Rowe twice today, because Stephen Rowe saw a passage from uh, what became Fighting for the Confederacy, showed it to Bob Crick, who showed it to me. Crick and I talked about which one of us should try to edit it, and Crick, because he's such a Stonewall Jackson guy, and this was the first core instead of the second core, said, oh, why don't you go look? Uh, in Chapel Hill. He wouldn't have said that if he'd known what was there, of course. I think Bob deeply regrets that he didn't do this, but he didn't. I went down to Chapel Hill, spent a week, gave myself one week to see if I could figure out what this was. What had happened is that the manuscript for Fighting for the Confederacy had been pulled apart and the chapters filed with topical chapters from other of Alexander's writings. So this 1,200-page manuscript literally disappeared into the mass of Alexander's papers. And people who did see pieces of it believed it was just a draft of military memoirs. I finally found the key in letters to his wife. He would send chapters home. And I found one that said, I'm sending the Gettysburg chapters. It's 115 pages with two maps. And I went and found 115 pages with two maps and then began to look for other pieces. And this was literally Friday afternoon when I found this letter. I was on the last half of my last day. I extended my visit and very quickly I had a manuscript that went from page one to 1200 of the entire manuscript. It was just, it was remarkable, it was fun. Some might say big fun. At any rate, that is the first, the Greytown reminiscences are the first one. He used the Greytown reminiscences, which would be published so many years later as the basis out of which military memoirs grew. The deaths of his wife in November 1899 and of a daughter just five months later cast Alexander into a, a, a very depressed place, and it took him a number of months to pull out of it. What really pulled him out of it in the end was the decision to revise his Greytown reminiscence into another book, but he decided to make it a different kind of book. He talked to some historians from the time, leading historians, William Archibald Dunning, Frederick Bancroft. It's always dangerous to talk to historians. He talked to them and they said, yes, this is interesting, but why don't you get rid of all that personal stuff? Nobody cares about that. Why don't you make this more a history of the Army of Northern Virginia? And that's what Alexander decided to do. He took out most of the really personal stuff. He left some in but took out a lot of it and made it more an analytical, almost scholarly history of the Army of Northern Virginia. Took him six years to work through all of this. 
Uh, the revised text for military memoirs differed from the Greytown manuscript in several important ways. I'll just give you a few of them. And I've already told you one, most of the personal stuff is gone. A lot of the, the really blunt assessments, gone. He toned those down. He's still very critical in military memoirs, but not, not in the kind of language he used in fighting for the Confederacy. He often softened or cut some of his most critical passages. The original allocated about 30% of its text to events before Gettysburg. Military memoirs, about 57%. They both gave about 13% to Gettysburg, and uh, Greytown Manuscript had about 47% after Gettysburg, and Military Memoirs about 28%. Scribner's, as I've already told you, published it in 1907, and it made an immediate impact. <clears throat> and it gained the status very quickly of that overused word, classic. Uh, something can be a classic now, you know, on Thursday. It happens on Monday. Oh, it's a classic. Really? It's a classic? Three days later? If that's a classic, what's an actual classic? But anyway, this one was perceived quickly as a classic. Theodore Roosevelt uh, informed Alexander shortly after the book appeared, quote, that I must write to tell you that I have thoroughly enjoyed your military memoirs. The Army and Navy Journal pronounced it, quote, one of the most valuable of all books on the war. Although many Southerners complained of Alexander's sometimes uh, too harsh evaluations of Lee or took exception to his lack of regret over the demise of the Confederacy. Even most of them generally admitted a, a, a very deep admiration for what Alexander had accomplished. Later historians echoed that initial enthusiasm. In an introduction to, to a reprint of military memoirs, there have been many reprints, but T. Harry Williams wrote an introduction to a reprint by Indiana University Press that came during the centennial years. Williams was one of the towering figures in Civil War scholarship at that point. Williams observed, quote, probably no book by a participant in the war has done so much to shape the historical image of that conflict. As Alexander drew lessons from the battles, so a lesson can be drawn from his book, namely that the finest military history may be written by a soldier who is also a scholar. The principal criticism registered by modern historians, this is pre-1989, was that Alexander hadn't put enough of his own experiences in this book. We wish we had gotten more from him. And of course, that criticism evaporates when you put fighting for the Confederacy alongside military memoirs of a Confederate, because there you get both things taken together. These two books complement each other beautifully and constitute a matchless contribution to the literature on the military side of the war. Okay, now I'm just going to read you some passages from the two books to give you a sense of why I think it is so good. And I'm going to open with a passage from military memoirs dealing with Fredericksburg, not the battle on December 13th, but on the scene on December 11th, 1862, as the United States Army, its engineers are throwing pontoon bridges under fire across the Rappahannock River, and Alexander has this incredible view of what's going on. The scene at Fredericksburg is never duplicated anywhere else in the war. It's this vast amphitheatrical 
situation where you can see more men than you could see at any other place at any other time in the war. Absolutely unmatched, nothing even close. And here's how Alexander talked about it. The, the Union artillery is bombarding the city because Confederates are using buildings in the city as shelter to resist the bridge builders on the Union side. The city except its steeples was still veiled in the mist which is settled in the valleys. Above it and in it incessantly showed the round white clouds of bursting shells. And out of its midst, there soon rose three or four columns of dense black smoke from houses set on fire by the explosions. The atmosphere was so perfectly calm and still that the smoke rose vertically in great pillars for several hundred feet before spreading outward in black sheets. The opposite bank of the river for two miles to the right and left was crowned at frequent intervals with blazing batteries. <coughs> canopied in clouds of white smoke. Beyond these, the dark blue masses of over 100,000 infantry in compact columns and numberless parks of white-topped wagons and ambulances massed in orderly ranks all awaited the completion of the bridges. The earth shook with the thunder of the guns, and high above all, a thousand feet in the air, hung two immense balloons. The scene gave impressive ideas of the disciplined power of a great army and of the vast resources of the nation which sent it forth. It's an amazing scene of what could be seen that day. Let me give three examples now of how Alexander was willing to reveal the really hard, sort of bloodthirsty, unpleasant part of the war. The first one's from May the 3rd at Chancellorsville. Just after his guns have achieved superiority. His guns at Hazel Grove have achieved superiority over the Union guns at Fairview. The United States Army's in retreat. Hooker has been stunned by a round. The Federals are retreating toward the Fords uh, to the north, and Alexander moves into position, and I'll pick up his, his writing right here. By the time we could get over, the enemy had abandoned his 25 gun pits. Those are at Fairview. And we deployed on the plateau and opened on the fugitives, infantry, artillery, wagons, everything swarming about the Chancellorsville house and down the broad road leading thence to the river. That's the part of artillery service that may be denominated pie to fire into swarming fugitives who can't answer back. One usually has had to pay for that pie before he gets it, so he has no compunctions of conscience or chivalry. When the last of the fugitives had disappeared, we ceased firing and ordering the guns to follow as they could limber up. I galloped forward to the house. Several wounded federal soldiers were lying near who had been quartered inside and hastily removed when it caught fire. And I remember noting a beautiful Newfoundland dog which had been killed, also lying in the yard. And after a while, General Lee and his staff rode up and once more those two portions of his army were united. You don't get many people who are quite so frank about how much delight they take in killing people who are moving away from them and not in a position to fight back. Alexander is very blunt about that. He's also very blunt when he describes the fighting at the Battle of the Crater. At the end of July 1864, the first time that the Army of Northern Virginia ever ran into significant numbers of black troops on the federal side, USCT units on the federal side, and he is very matter-of-fact 
in fighting for the Confederacy about the impact that that first confrontation had. There were comparatively very few Negro prisoners taken that day. It was the first occasion on which any of the Army of Northern Virginia came in contact with Negro troops, and the general feeling of the men toward their employment was very bitter. The sympathy of the North for John Brown's memory was taken for proof of a desire that our slaves should rise in servile insurrection and massacre throughout the South. And the enlistment of Negro troops was regarded as advertisement of that desire and encouragement of the idea to the Negro. That made the fighting on this occasion exceedingly fierce and bitter on the part of our men, not only toward the Negroes themselves, but sometimes even to the white men who fought alongside them. Some of the Negro prisoners who were originally allowed to surrender by some soldiers were afterwards shot by others. And there was, without doubt, a great deal of unnecessary killing of them. Matter of fact, this is what happened. I'm going to describe it, and then he's going to move on. This is a very unusual kind of passage to find in a Confederate memoir. I'm also going to read, he was also willing, he didn't dress up language. He didn't, they didn't really uh, abide by the Victorian conventions, especially not in fighting for the Confederacy. That last passage was from fighting for the Confederacy, and so is this one. He's willing to put, I mean, we all know, the 19th century Americans, they have all the words that we have. Uh, every word we have, they had. And they used all the words that we use. And if we had wandered around a battlefield, we would have thought, my goodness, F-bombs everywhere uh, as we're going around here. Well, most people wouldn't put that kind of language down. And I'm not going to put every kind of language down. But here's Porter Alexander describing a situation at first bull run, late in the phase of the battle, that battle where a bunch of civilians came out to sort of watch the big climactic battle, as you all know, and one of those civilians was a congressman from New York named Alfred Ely. And Alfred Ely, alas for Alfred, was going to be captured uh, by the Confederates who happened to be part of a unit commanded by a fire eater from South Carolina named Ellerby B.C. Cash. And Porter Alexander, who was on Beauregard's staff, comes up while this little drama is playing out late in the battle. Uh, and as he reached the rear of the 8th South Carolina Infantry, which is Cash's regiment, uh, I will pick up his narrative. There I saw a very fine-looking Sergeant Major come out of the woods on the left with a small man in citizen's dress and take him before the colonel at the head of the regiment. This is Alfred Ely. The colonel was a tall, stalwart fellow, apparently 35 or 40 years old, red-headed, red-faced, light gray-eyed, strong-featured, and as I approached him that afternoon, his face was as angry-looking as a storm cloud, and he had drawn his revolver, and he was trying to shoot the little civilian who was ducking behind the sergeant major. The colonel was swearing with a fluency which would have been creditable to a wagon master. You infernal son of a bitch, you came here to see the fight, didn't you? God damn your dirty soul. I'll show you. And the colonel spurred his horse around to get a better angle uh, on the little civilian. Alexander 
tried to intervene. You know, I'm on Beauregard staff. There are instructions not to execute people on the battlefield. Uh, you might want to keep that in mind, Colonel. Came down to here, came down here to see the fun, said Colonel Cass. Came to see us whipped and killed. God damn you. If it was not for such as you, there would be no war. You've made it and then come down to gloat over it. God damn you, I'm going to show you. And again, Cash tried to shoot the little man, <laughs> who was evidently, I love the drollery here, who was evidently scared almost into a fit. <laughs> Once again, Alexander said, as students would say, well, I won't try to quote this. Calm down, Colonel. You're not supposed to be executing people on the scene. And Cash calmed down a little bit. But then he turned to the sergeant major and said, turn him over to the provo marshal and then go and hunt the woods for Senator Foster. He's hiding in there somewhere. Go and find him. And God damn you, if you bring him in alive, I'll cut your ears off. <laughs> That's not a side that we see often of... <laughs> of Confederate officers on battlefields. He's being harsh in his language. I don't think there was a safe space uh, for, for Alfred Ely on that part of the battlefield that day. I think he was feeling a microaggression uh, from, from Colonel Cash. And Porter Alexander leaves us a wonderful account of that little drama. He was also, as I said earlier, willing to criticize even the, the most iconic of the Confederate leaders, and so let's pick two at random, okay, Lee and Jackson, uh, among the iconic leaders of the Confederacy, and let's start with Lee. This is Porter Alexander talking about Lee at Gettysburg. Uh, this is from Fighting for the Confederacy. On the first day, we had taken the aggressive, although a casual reading of General Lee's report suggests that the aggressive on the second day seemed forced upon him, yet the statement is very much qualified by the expression, quote, in a measure, and also by the reference to the hopes inspired by our partial success earlier. I think it must be frankly admitted that there was no real difficulty, whatever, in our taking the defensive the next day and in our so maneuvering afterward as to have finally forced Meade to attack us. I think it reasonable to estimate that 60% of our chances for a great victory were lost by our continuing the aggressive. Now, this is written at a time when most former Confederates are explaining Gettysburg as it's James Longstreet's fault. Before that, it had been Richard Ewell's fault. It had been Jeb Stewart's fault. It had been everybody's fault but R.E. Lee's fault. And here we have Porter Alexander saying, no, look, here's what's going on. It is General Lee's fault. He also had very harsh things to say, this is from military memoirs, about Stonewall Jackson here in Richmond during the seven days. It's really not hard to be critical of Stonewall Jackson at the seven days. If anybody serving under Stonewall Jackson had behaved the way Stonewall Jackson behaved, he, of course, would have arrested them and maybe tried to run them out of the army, but we know that didn't happen. There's an interesting... Uh, little aside that Alexander didn't put in the text of fighting for the Confederacy, but he, he wrote it off to the side in the, on the paper that he was using, and he said that there were several members of R.E. Lee's staff who wanted to prefer charges against Stonewall Jackson because of his activities at the Seven Days, and that Lee basically said, what good would that possibly 
accomplish at this point. Lee was much more sophisticated about that than many people. But here's how he described Jackson at the seven days. Lee took, <clears throat> then took himself off to the farthest flank as if generous, <clears throat> excuse me, generously to leave to Jackson the opportunity of the most brilliant victory of the war. Jackson's failure is not so much a military as a psychological phenomenon. He did not try and fail. He simply made no effort. This, <clears throat> this story embraces two days. He spent the 29th in camp in disregard of Lee's instructions, and he spent the 30th in equal idleness at White Oak Swamp. His 25,000 infantry practically did not fire a shot on those two days. Alexander didn't approve of that. He's also even-handed in terms of not following usual lost cause tendencies. Usually what lost cause writers did was they would try to deprecate Grant as if it's a zero-sum game. Make Grant come down, that elevates Lee. You can't admit that they were both great soldiers. You've got to pretend Grant wasn't great and that makes Lee look better. Alexander didn't do that. He was talking about Grant's movement away from Cold Harbor that brought him to Petersburg the second week of June, 1864, that amazing movement that involved crossing uh, the James with that incredible pontoon bridge. Uh, this is how Alexander describes this. Grant had devised a piece of strategy all his own, which seems to me the most brilliant stroke in all the federal campaigns of the whole war. It was, by somewhat roundabout roads, but, in, <clears throat> excuse me, but entirely out of our observation, to precipitate his whole army upon Petersburg, which was held by scarcely 6,000 men. Uh, and Gustav Tutan Beauregard, of course, was down there. Not only was this strategy brilliant in conception, for which all the credit, I believe, belongs to General Grant, but the orders and the details of such a rapid movement of so mighty an army, with all its immense trains and its artillery across two rivers on its own pontoon bridges, make it also the most brilliant piece of logistics of the entire war. There's very little of that kind of honest uh, admiration for anything that Grant did by former Confederates. He also didn't buy into the, of course the United States won because their victory was inevitable. It was, there's no way the Confederacy could have won. It was hopeless odds, blah, blah, blah. Uh, fate is often brought into the picture. One of the, of the monuments in Charlottesville, one of the Confederate monuments is in UVA Cemetery where there are a thousand Confederate soldiers who died uh, in the hospitals when UVA was a hospital. They're buried there and that monument says in the front, Fate denied them victory, but crowned them with immortality. Fate denied them victory. If fate's not on your side, what's the point? Uh, because fate is going to have fate's way. This is the sort of Shelby Foote look at it. You know, the South never could have won that war. You know the rest. Porter Alexander doesn't buy into that, into fate having anything to do with it. It's customary to say that Providence did not intend that we should win, he wrote. I do not subscribe to that in the least. Providence did not care a row of pins about it. If it did, it was a very unintelligent providence not to bring the business to a close, the close it wanted in less than four years of the most terrible and bloody war. He's getting into the 
And while I'm on the subject, I will say that I think it was a serious incubus upon us that during the whole war, our president and many of our generals really underlined and actually underlined, believed that there was underlined this mysterious providence always hovering over the field and ready to interfere on one side or the other. It was a weakness to imagine that victory would ever come in even the slightest degree from anything except our own exertions, he wrote. I'm now going to finish with two more narrative examples. I, can, I sense a question in the audience. Are we almost finished? <laughs> can we go buy books now? How long is this guy going to talk? I'm going to bring this to an end with two more examples of what I consider Alexander's wonderful narrative ability to be evocative in a way that, that very few writers, Grant could match it in some ways. I mean, the only equivalent of Alexander, I think, in terms of, of, the, of the quality of a post-war account is Grant's memoirs on the Union side. It's the best. Alexander is the best on the Confederate side. And here are the two I'm going to close with. One is a passage that, better than anything else I've ever seen, gets at the bond between Lee and the soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia. And the scene that Alexander chose is the scene when Longstreet's first corps gets back from East Tennessee late in April 1864. They had been off, I mean, even Longstreet, he was really glad to be back. He'd wanted to go, and then he'd gotten a dose of Braxton Bragg and probably thought, you know, it wasn't so bad in Virginia after all. So they're back. The first corps is back, just two divisions. Pickett's division didn't go with them. They're down to 10,000 men. The first court had 20,000 at Gettysburg. There are 10,000 of them here. They're drawn up in two divisions for a review. Lee wants to see his first corps men when they've come back. And here's Alexander. And they, this review took place at Mechanicsville, not the Mechanicsville here in Richmond, but the Mechanicsville over by Charlottesville, uh, the spot from which Longstreet would march to the wilderness battlefield the first week of May. I can see now the large square gate posts without gate or fence. <clears throat> marking where a broad country road led out of a tall oak wood upon an open field in front of the center of our long gray lines. And in the well-remembered figure of General Lee upon Traveler, at the head of his staff, he rides between the posts and comes out upon the knoll, and my bugle sounds a signal, and my old battalion thunders out a salute, and the general reins up his horse and bears his good gray head and looks at us, and we shout and cry and wave our battle flags and look back at him. Sudden as a wind, a wave of sentiment, such as can only come to large crowds in full sympathy, seemed to sweep over the field. Each man seemed to feel the bond which held us all to Lee. There was no speaking, but the effect was that of a military sacrament in which we pledged anew our lives. I think that's an amazing choice of words there and an amazing thing to put in the reader's mind. This is, okay, Lee's back with us. We're back with him. We've been gone a long time, and this is the effect as of a military sacrament. And I'll finish with a scene here in Richmond. As the city's being abandoned, Petersburg, Five Forks is on April 1st, as you know. The lines are crumbling at Petersburg, and the word comes to Richmond. This cannot be maintained this defense of the city. We're going to have to get out. 
and you know the chaotic situation. That day, uh, early in April, Confederates set some fires. You know the fires spread from below the Capitol down to the river around the turning basin. The huge flour mills were going to go up. All those photographs of the gaunt shells of burned out buildings in Richmond. Those fires are blazing. And the last of the Confederates are coming out of the city. You all know that great lithograph coming across the bridge to the Manchester high ground and the fires in the background. Well, here is Porter Alexander's description of what that moment meant to him. He said, it was after sunrise of a bright morning when from the Manchester high grounds, we turned to take our last look at the old city for which we had fought so long and so hard. It was a sad, a terrible, and a solemn sight. I don't know that any moment in the whole war impressed me more deeply with all its stern realities than this. The whole riverfront seemed to be in flames, amid which occasional heavy explosions were heard, and the black smoke spreading and hanging over the city seemed to be full of dreadful portents. I rode on with a distinctly heavy heart and with a peculiar sort of feeling of orphanage. It's an amazing passage to describe what the kind of thing that must have been going through the minds of veterans in an army whose principal job for three years had been to defend this place. And now it's over. The combination of scholarship and descriptive power in Porter Alexander's two accounts ensures that readers, I believe, will be both enlightened and entertained. They also will come away with a feeling of Alexander as a friend, someone who reaches out to us across more than a century to help us understand some of the most important people and some of the most important events of our most transformational national event. Thank you. Now the good news is, the good news is that you're under no imperative to stay if you don't want to, but there is time, is that right, James, for two, oh, two, two questions. All right. Two questions. Uh, Dr. Gallagher, an interesting, uh, entertaining talk about a, clearly a man of parts. Um, turning from his work, uh, from his words to his work, you mentioned the uh, bombardment that preceded Pettigrew and and uh, Pickett at Gettysburg. And some have regarded that as largely an ineffective bombardment. What was Alexander's take on that event? Well, Alexander's take is complicated. Alexander couldn't tell. He, he said within 10 minutes he couldn't really determine the effect of his fire on Cemetery Ridge. We know now that it was an ineffective bombardment. And the problem was that mid-19th century artillery was not capable of the kind of precision that would hit a target as shallow as the target on Cemetery Ridge. Uh, he laid down a lot of fire. He worried about how much ammunition he had, and he finally conveyed to Longstreet that, he, that it, the infantry needed to get going or wouldn't be able to support it with artillery. Uh, recent scholarship has shown that a good part of the problem was probably with the Confederate fuses for its explosive rounds. They had problems with them throughout the war, 
from Hazel Grove at Chancellorsville, some of the battery commanders were so frustrated by the Confederate fuses that they stopped using explosive rounds as explosive rounds. The fuses would detonate prematurely or they would not detonate at all. At Gettysburg, they seemed to have detonated just a little bit late so that the full effect of the bombardment, you all know this, uh, fell on the reverse of Cemetery Ridge rather than on the, uh, on the western side where the fire was directed to go. Joe Glattar's done work in, with some of the ordnance records that suggest these, these problems, the, the ordnance side was having these problems, and I think they manifested themselves at Gettysburg. It's an ineffective bombardment, very noisy. Alexander, incidentally, says the bombardment, the usual time you see for it is two hours. The bombardment went from one to three. Alexander says it went less than an hour, and I think he's someone who might have known something about how long it went. Yes. Uh, did, does Alexander say um, uh, Lee missed the best chance uh, to win the war by failing to take uh, Grant in the flank uh, when Grant uh, leaves Cold Harbor and uh, goes off to cross the James? He does not say that. He, he thinks that the Confederates lost a great chance during the seven days. He thinks that the... Uh, and he's really hard on Lee at the Seven Days. I think he's maybe a little too hard because it wasn't Lee's army yet at the Seven Days. He has this gaggle of division commanders, many of whom are headed for ignominy in the Trans-Mississippi uh, as soon as possible. If Theophilus Holmes and Benjamin Uge and John Bankhead Magruder are among your stalwarts, you know that you have a weak uh, foundation uh, there. And Lee corrected that, but he is, he's hard on him in the Seven Days. He's also hard on him at Gettysburg. Alexander only saw his part of the battlefield at Gettysburg. He went back after the war, went around the whole line, and said the bombardment should have been against Cemetery Hill because we could have achieved converging fire against Cemetery Hill. We could have had batteries from Benner's Hill, batteries from the north, and batteries from Seminary Ridge, all firing on that part of the line. On our part of the line, we're firing on this very shallow target. And then he added, and the only person who knew what the whole line looked like was Ari Lee. And so, again, he's, that is a criticism he has of Lee at Gettysburg. His, if you want his 100 pages on Gettysburg in fighting for the Confederacy are one of the very best, very best analytical takes on that that you will find anywhere. You cannot go wrong. In, and this has nothing to do with what I did to it. All I did was make it available to be published. He is simply, he, the, the analytical quality of his work is in a category all by itself. All by itself among former Confederates who wrote about the Civil War. He's so smart and so honest, so blunt, so careful that it's just simply all by itself. And I've now said that three times, and that's enough, too. <laughs> Thank you.